Foolish people make foolish decisions, and so people will know it. It will be found out. He goes on. Verse 4. If the ruler's temper rises against you, do not abandon your position, because composure allays great offenses. Now he's moving his argument just a little bit toward a a specific circumstance. Now we have a ruler that is... uh, has foolish behavior, has a foolish temperament. And he says, if a ruler's temper rises against you, which is a really bad thing, because rulers had ultimate power, and if they are mad at you, you're not in a good spot. So the people around this ruler, if if they get on the ruler's bad side, it would be very, very easy for them to say, you know what, I'm just going to get out of this situation. I'm just going to walk away. I'm just going to abandon my position. I'm going to give my notice and be gone um, so that I don't get the, the raw end of the deal here with the ruler. But Solomon says, you know what, actually, you should probably just stay there. Stay in your position. Keep your composure in that moment because while a ruler, you know, an imprudent ruler like this, his temper can rise very quickly, it also means that his temper can dissipate quickly. And so stick it out, keep your composure, do the right kinds of things, and you probably won't lose your position. A little bit of wisdom. I think for us today, we don't have uh, rulers that we have to deal with in this manner, but we do have, uh, many of us have bosses or have had bosses, people who are in charge of us. Uh, Anybody ever had an unreasonable boss who you're like, oh man, this guy is temperamental. This is wisdom for that moment. Uh, So much easier to just give your notice, walk away, go, I'm not going to deal with this. The better way to go is a little bit of prudence. Verse 5, there is an evil that I have seen under the sun, like an error which goes forth from the ruler. Folly is set in many exalted places, while rich men sit in humble places. I have seen slaves riding on horses and princes walking like slaves on the land. We've got to understand, again, culturally, uh, this is a very different culture than our time. Uh, you've got to understand the mindset of where they're coming from. The wealthy were considered the competent people in society. I know today uh, we have kind of a distaste for people who have wealth uh, in our society. We look at them as uh, bad people, evil people, probably swindled their way up into their position, which is probably not true, but, but we have that perception generally as Americans. I don't, I don't know where we got this idea, but we tend to. We don't like the 1%, right? Um, but the idea here is generally people who get to those kind of positions were competent to get there. And I would say that's true in our world. Most wealthy people in our world got their wealth because of some sort of competence in their life. They were good at what they did. They were good at business. They were good at some sort of uh, invention that they made. They were good at navigating uh, finances, and they ended up on the good end of the deal because generally they are competent. Now, whether you believe that or not, that's at least the perception that they had back then. And also he says, uh, he talks about princes, which are those who had kind of the, res- the resources, the res- resourcefulness to be in leadership. And they also had the nobility of heart to be in leadership. So in their time, the right way that things should work 
is that those who made it to leadership were generally those who were the most qualified, those who um, had all the wisdom they need, needed to be good leaders. Um, they, they could perform their duties well because they were competent. They, the, the cream rises to the top was their perception of what is good. I think that's our perception too. We would like for the cream to rise to the top. We would like for people in leadership positions to be competent, right? But both in their time and our time, we know of the truth of the world. That unqualified, unprepared, incompetent people rise to leadership all the time. It happens, right? And so those unqualified, unprepared, incompetent people are now making decisions for people under them who might be even more competent than they are. Sometimes uh, they get to their position because of nepotism or uh, friends promoting friends or uh, that really, uh, that guy who kisses up to the boss all the time and gets his position because, you know, the boss feels honored by that person. In fact, there's a, a principle, a sociological principle. They've studied this, and this is, this is a, a truism. It's called the Peter Principle. Anybody familiar with this? Uh, generally, people are, are um, in any organization, they are promoted to, they keep getting promoted up the ladder because they're competent at what they're doing, right? So you're competent at this level, we're going to promote you to the next level, and then Hopefully you're competent at that level, so we're going to promote you to the next level, and then maybe you're a little less competent, but we think you're still good, and we're going to promote you to the next level, and you just keep, keep getting promoted until the person becomes what? Incompetent, right? They get to that level where they're no longer competent, and of course, they don't keep going up the ladder, hopefully, but they are now in this position in which they are incompetent to their position, but this is just a reality in most organizations. This is life. Incompetent people run things a lot. Competent people do also, but it's very possible incompetent people also are in charge. His point is, this is not the way it should be. This is an evil in the world. This is, this is unfair. This world is not right. It's, it's not working the way it should work. Here's the point on, on the handout if you want to fill it in. We should expect to encounter foolish people in life at all levels of power and influence. Composure is key when dealing with those people and situations. We should not be surprised to encounter foolish people at all levels of power and influence. Composure is key. He goes on. He says, he who digs a pit may fall into it, and a serpent may bite, may bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones may be hurt by them, and he who splits logs may be endangered by them. He gives a handful of examples here. He says, there, there's a guy who digs a pit and uh, accidentally falls into that pit. So he accomplished something. He wanted to dig a pit. There was some purpose for the pit. He worked hard. He created a pit. And then he ends up suffering from the good thing that he did, the good work that he did. Make sense? Digging a pit, this is a good thing, and he falls into it. If the pit wouldn't have been there, would he have fallen into the pit? No, right? Not the way it should be, but do things like this happen? Sure they do. 
Got a second guy. He uh, works hard to break down a wall, break through a wall. We don't know why he's breaking down the wall, but there's needs sometimes for demo projects, right? Tony can talk to you about it. You, you demo a lot, right? Right, Tony, when you need to. Uh, you got to break through a wall, right? Break it down. But he breaks down the wall, which is a good thing, what he should be doing, and finds on the other side of what? A snake. That bites him, right? Not good. Now, would the snake have bitten him if he hadn't broken down the wall? No, right? Does a good thing, bad result occurs. Got another guy. Works hard to collect large stones in a quarry. Um, This is a good thing. Quarries are a good thing. They help with construction materials. Good, hard work. But he actually gets hurt by these boulders, these rocks that he collects. Stuff like this happen in the world? Definitely happen. Fourth guy, lumberjack, splits logs of firewood for, for, well, for, for firewood and sometimes building materials. Good hard work that he's doing, good thing, but in the end, he gets hurt by the logs he just split. You guys get the, the pattern here? I don't know why I think about this, uh, but a, a movie that I love, that I've loved since I was a kid, is a movie called The Man from Snowy River. Anybody? It's a good movie. Quality movie. Um, the second one, not so good, Return to Snowy River or whatever, but the first one's really good. Um, in that, right at the beginning, the main character's dad, they're logging. So they're collecting all these logs. It's a really good thing. It's their business. They've been doing it for decades. And they're, they're stacking up all these logs. Really good work. And in one moment, one of the, the, the logs that were holding the logs up broke, and his dad gets piled over with all these, these logs, right? Gone. This is life. Life is full of unintended consequences. Things that, that you work hard to do a good job and end up bad things come from that. It's not the way it should be, but it is the way that it is. It is the way that our world works. Life can definitely be this way. I uh, remember when I was in seminary, I was really enjoying my studies, uh, but the whole purpose of going to seminary for me at the time was I was doing youth ministry. I just wanted to do youth ministry better. I wanted to be able to create, uh, communicate Scripture more clearly to these students. Um, I had no intention of ever standing in front of um, people who are not teenagers um, and, and teaching God's Word. Um, God had other plans, obviously, but uh, I just wanted to do my job better. Um, what I found, though, is as I got into my theological studies and I was constantly reading these theological books with all these heady ideas and all these uh, big theological words and stuff, is I would get up in front of these students and I used to just be able to talk to them on their level and suddenly I was using all of these big theological words and concepts with them and I'm like, hold on a second, this is not working, right? This is not what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to communicate better to them. I'm trying to help them understand Scripture better. And instead, I was looking at it a bunch of lost faces because they're like, what are you talking about, Nate? Um, unintended consequence, right? And I had to work really hard at training that stuff out of my vocabulary so I could communicate with them. Look at verse 10. It says, if the axe is dull and he does not sharpen its edge, then he must exert more strength. 
Wisdom has the advantage of giving success. If the serpent bites before being charmed, there is no profit for the charmer. So he's saying uh, someone who goes and, and chops wood down, which he had just talked about, um, he's definitely going to try to sharpen his axe before he goes to chop wood down, right? Is there any benefit um, to sharpening the axe after you've already felled the trees? <laughs> well, for the next time, yeah. But no benefit to the job you just did, right? You just wasted all that time with a dull axe, right? You have to exert more strength to get that done. Instead, wisdom has the advantage of giving success. That This is, goes along with a theme that he's talked about throughout Ecclesiastes, that it's not always the strongest who, uh, who get the benefit, that it's typically the wisest who get the benefit. So, so just because you can have strength to knock down a tree with a dull axe, why not sharpen that axe and it's going to be a, a much more success, much easier. And then he says, the serpent that bites before being charmed, there's no profit to the charmer. Um, you got a uh, little snake charmer here. Yeah, I would never do that. <laughs> no, thank you. Now, any benefit to the charmer doing that if he's already been bitten? <laughs> Imagine he got bit and he's like, you know, probably dying and he's charming these snakes. Any benefit to him to do that? No. Point is this. Wisdom is good. But wisdom in the right time is better, right? Sharpening the axe before you knock down the tree. Charming the snake before it bites you, very important. Timing matters. All right, let's look at 12. Words from the mouth of a wise man are gracious, while the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of his talking is folly, and the end is wicked madness. Yet the fool multiplies words. No man knows what will happen, and who can tell him what will come after him? The toil of a fool so wearies him that he does not even know how to go to the city. He's, again, talking about the benefit of wisdom, that wise people tend to speak words that other people want to hear, because they want that wisdom. They typically speak words that benefit those who hear the words, uh, and they typically want to hear more from a wise person. Right? This is generally how things work. Um, no one is going to uh, conferences with someone who has no idea what they're talking about. Why would you waste your time doing that? You go to someone who you think has the wisdom that you need, and you want to listen to that. On the other hand, foolish people's words are usually their downfall, is what he's saying. Um, that that a, a, a fool... Um, begins talking folly, foolishness, um, babbling, and at the end finishes with wicked madness, with delusional speaking. And he's using one of these things that we've talked about before called a merism, where he's like, uh, a fool starts saying nonsense and he ends saying more nonsense, which means everything in between is what? Nonsense, right? <laughs> they just always talk nonsense. But the interesting thing is the fool is only talking nonsense, and so does the fool stop talking? No, he multiplies his words. He just keeps talking, thinking at some point that he's going to land on wisdom, but he just continues to talk foolishness. 
because he has no idea what's going to happen, and he has no idea what he's really talking about, but he keeps talking. And then the last statement, he says, the toil of a fool so wearies him that he does not even know how to go to the city. His point there is, everyone knows how to get where, to where they're going, right? That's his assumption here. People who live in a particular city know how to get around that city and get to that city if they're outside of that city, right? There's the assumption there. Uh, we all have, you know, Google Maps and stuff, so we know how to get where we're going, right? Um, he says, a, a fool doesn't even know the basics of life. That's what he's saying. The fool doesn't even know how to get into town, which is like the most fundamental thing that anyone should know in culture, in their culture. Look at 16. He says, Woe to you, O land, whose king is a lad and whose princes feast in the morning. Blessed are you, O land, whose king is of nobility and whose princes eat at the, at the appropriate time, for strength and not for drunkenness. Through indolence, the rafters sag, and through slackness, the house leaks. Men prepare a meal for enjoyment, and wine makes life merry, and money is the answer to everything. So he's, he's, he's um, talking about a, a, a woe. It's bad for you. It's really, really unfortunate. I feel really bad for you. You land that has a ruler that is this particular way. And then he describes what this ruler is like. This ruler is immature. That's what the word lad means. It doesn't necessarily mean someone who's young. It means someone who's grossly immature. Woe to you who have a leader, someone who's in charge, who is extremely immature. And whose uh, princes feast in the morning, which means from the very break of dawn, they wake up and all they do is party. Party, 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 party. But blessed are you, the land, whose king is noble, who does the right things, cares about doing the right things, wants to serve his people, and whose princes eat at the appropriate time, that there is a time for feasting, but that is once the day's work is done. And, and, and that that person feasts not for drunkenness, not to party, but to eat to gain strength so that he can turn around the next day and serve his people. Blessed are you to have a, a king like that, a leader like that. But he goes back to this woe for those who have your partying prince who uh, doesn't care about his people. The rafters sag, the, uh, the house leaks, um, they only eat meals for their own enjoyment. They, uh, the wine makes them merry or drunk. They're just trying to be drunk people all the time. And they think money is the answer to everything. If you have a leader like that, not good. Not good. Again, I don't know that we can relate to leaders like this. Not to say that we're always happy with our leaders, um, like political leaders, but uh, I think we can all relate to having a boss a time or two that is this kind of um, doesn't really care about his job, doesn't really care about his workers. Um, not a good place to be in. But then he gives some uh, counter wisdom here. Look at verse 20. He says, Furthermore, in your bedchamber, do not curse a king. And in your sleeping rooms, do not curse a rich man. 
For a bird of the heavens will carry the sound, and the winged creature will make the matter known. He says, be careful, because if you make a habit of speaking badly about uh, leadership, um, this might apply again to a boss or to a political figure, if you make a habit of that, then it's probably going to get out. Someone is going to mention your, um, your words that tear down uh, your boss, and that won't go well for you. So maybe hold your tongue. That's the better way to go. All right, going to wrap all of that wisdom up into this statement, which probably doesn't cover it at all, but we're going to go with it. Unwise, wicked, self-centered, and lazy leaders have always been around. Be wise in how and when you respond. Unwise, wicked, self-centered, and lazy leaders have always been around. Be wise in how and when you respond. All right, last little section here. It says, cast your bread on the surface of the waters, for you will find it after many days. Divide your portion to seven or even to eight, for you do not know what misfortune may occur on the earth. Uh, this first part is kind of a weird idiom um, of the time. Uh, cast your bread on the surface of the waters. Uh, I don't know about you, but I think of soggy wonder bread <laughs> on a river or something. Um, in fact, I remember when the kids were really young, we used to take them to this um, place. I think we called it Duck Pond, but there were just uh, ducks everywhere. And we'd give them little, you know, we'd get a bag of Wonder Bread and they'd tear it apart and throw it to the ducks, right? Anybody ever done that kind of stuff before? That's what I'm picturing here, right? But you throw it on the water and it gets soggy. Um, and then it says, for you will find it after many days. I don't want to find it after many days. That's gross. Um, but that's not what he's saying. Um, it's an idiom that is closer to how the New Living Translation has it. I think they do better here. It says, send your grain across the seas, and in time, profits will flow back to you. Divide your investments among many places, for you do not know what risks might lie ahead. It, um, bread is actually a word that was used for food in general, or the commodity of food, right? So the idea here, here is send your commodity out on the water. Go uh, trade. Be a, be a merchant is really what it's talking about. Um, and, and that it's good to do that. That we think, oops, sorry, that we think... Um, or they might have thought in their time, well, I don't know what's going to happen. If I send my, my resources, these things that I've grown in, on my farm, if I send them out, something bad might happen when they're out there, and I might lose all of this fortune that I have. And so it, it leads to kind of um, uh, an immovable state, a, a place in which you go, well, I'm so afraid something bad's going to happen, I'm instead going to do nothing. But he says, no, 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 go ahead and send it out. Yes, life is uncertain. We don't know what's going to happen. That's the way of things. But send it out. Don't cause that to keep you from taking a step forward. I don't know if you've ever had those times in your life. I know I have. Where something bad happens and it makes me move to a place where I'm like, well, if I just don't do anything, maybe the bad thing won't happen again. But that's not the way to go. The way to go is to keep moving forward, keep taking steps. Now, when you take steps, be wise. That's the second part. Divide your investments among many places. 
So in his illustration, send it out on multiple ships. Send some by land and some by the water, right? And then if something bad does happen, you won't lose all of it. It's kind of our modern day, our modern day version of this is don't put all your eggs in one basket, right? Because if you lose the basket, there go all your eggs, right? Split them up, diversify your investments, that's a good thing. Recognize that life, a lot of life is left up to chance, and so don't be foolish with putting all your eggs in one basket. He goes on, verse 3. If the clouds are full, they pour out rain upon the earth. And whether a tree falls toward the south or toward the north, wherever the tree falls, there it lies. This again, a lot of this is a little bit hard for us to relate to. But what he's getting at here is farmers would look to the clouds to see when the rain was going to come, right? Because rain can be very, very helpful to a crop, and you want to plant your seeds at the appropriate time so that the rain can, can, uh, can fall on it and it will respond and grow. But too much rain is going to flood out your seed that you just laid down, and that's going to go badly, right? So farmers typically try to watch the clouds. They didn't have their farmer's almanac at this time. They would just watch the clouds and see what the clouds are doing. The problem is, if you spend all of your time worried about what the clouds are doing, are you going to get any work done? No. So you need to just let the clouds do what the clouds are going to do, go do your work, and you'll be good. Yes, life is full of chance, but it should not keep you from doing what you need to do. It should not keep you from, it should not um, draw your focus on the wrong things. And here's his point. Look at, look at verse four. He says, He who watches the wind will not sow, and he who looks at the clouds will not reap. It's what we just talked about. They're not going to do their job. You need to go out and do the work. Just as you do not know the path of the wind and how bones are form, formed in the womb of the pregnant woman, you do not know the activity of God who makes all things. So if the farmer's constantly checking the direction of the wind, constantly checking the clouds, he's not going to plant, he's not going to sow, right? And he's definitely not going to reap. And just as in their time, they had no idea what was going on in the belly of a pregnant woman. I mean, they had no clue what was going on there. Um, we have a little bit of a better idea because we have uh, sonograms, right? Um, so we can have a, a general idea. But honestly, we have a lot of questions about what's going on there, right? But his point is, just like you can't really know what's going on in the belly of a pregnant woman, and at their time, they didn't know anything, um, you cannot really know what's going to happen an hour from now, a day from now, a week from now. That's all God's domain. So the answer is, go plant your fields, right? Go do the work. Don't let fear of what's coming keep you from stepping into the things that you're supposed to step into and do. I think that's pretty good wisdom. I think in our own lives, it's very, very easy. Again, I know I've had these times in my, lives, in my life where it's like, I just am so uncertain about what the next thing is gonna bring that, that I'm so kind of paralyzed with that reality. Instead of just going, you know what? God's gonna do what he's gonna do. This life is unpredictable. And we just got to live with the fact that it's unpredictable and step into the next thing, whatever that is. Go do the work. Look at verse 6. 
Sow your seed in the morning, and do not be idle in the evening, for you do not know whether the morning or the evening sowing will succeed, or whether both of them alike will be good. Again, here's kind of the wrapping up of, of this point. Go and work hard all day. Don't try to second guess what God is doing uh, in the world. Just step out, go do your job. There's no substitute for hard work and also kind of covering all your bases. Both good things. Look at verse 7. The light is pleasant and it is good for the eyes to see the sun. Indeed, if a man should live many years, let him rejoice in them all and let him remember the days of darkness, for they will be many. Everything that is to come will be futility. Oh, here we go with futility again, right? So he says light is pleasant. Light is a good thing. Light represents here the kind of the good days of life, the, the, the pleasant experiences of life. His point is good days are good, right? When you have a good day, it's good. And a long life of generally good days is a good thing. So be happy when life is good. Um, enjoy life when life is good. And hope that maybe you'll have many, many days that are good in your life. But also remember, are there dark days in life? Anybody not had a dark day yet? Come on, right? We have dark days all the time. Dark days are a reality of life. We should expect that dark days will come and not be surprised by them, not be overwhelmed by them, but recognize that life is both going to have really good days and life is also going to have really bad days. But in the end, it will all be worth it, right? Is that what Solomon says? But in the end, it's all futility. It all is meaningless anyway at the end. So enjoy the good days when they're here. Uh, live through the bad days. Move through the bad days when they're here. In the end, it's all going to be worthless. All right. Thanks, Solomon. Appreciate that. <laughs> He's always so uh, encouraging. All right, verse 9. Next week, he actually will be encouraging. Wait for it. Uh, verse 9. Rejoice, young man, during your childhood, and let your heart be pleasant during the days of your manhood. And follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes. Yet know that God will bring to you judgment for all these things. So remove grief and anger from your heart and put away pain from your body because childhood and the prime of life are fleeting. So um, I read that a little sarcastically because I think he's being pretty sarcastic right here, okay? He says, rejoice, young people. Rejoice in your childhood. Follow all the impulses of your heart. Whatever you want to do, just go do. You'll only live once. Uh, enjoy life while you have it. Uh, you're only young once. Uh, youth is wasted on the young, right? So go and do everything your heart desires. Don't let anything hinder you from doing whatever you want. Well, except know that God's going to judge you for all the stuff that you do, but, Right? But go, try to eliminate pain in your life. Try to, try to live it up. Get rid of all sadness and anger and pain. Anything in your life that, that you know, is toxic to you, get rid of all the toxic stuff in your life, right? Uh, because, well, God's going to judge everything that you do. You get his point? It's like you think the way to go, and especially those who are young, think the way to go is to pursue everything that their heart desires. 
You might have been like that when you were young. And we know the result of that, right? It's not going to benefit you. Young people in the room, it's not going to benefit you to pursue that. And God is going to judge you. You're going to have to stand before him and be judged. So maybe don't be so foolish. Point on your hand out if you want to fill it in is, do not waste time trying to guess at what God is doing. But don't let your lack of knowing lead to inaction. Don't waste time trying to guess at what God is doing. But don't let your lack of knowing lead you to inaction. All right, let's read the bottom of the handout. We all wish that life were a place where the most competent, hardest working, loyal, and committed people were the ones who were always given leadership positions. But that is just not the world we live in. We all wish that, that if we pursue wisdom and live by it, that it will always produce the proper results. But we live in a world where others' foolish decisions, especially those in power, and just blind chance can destroy our best efforts in any moment. Even though life is filled with all this uncertainty, it should not paralyze us from action, but cause us to work with increased diligence and wisdom so that we might be in the best position to avoid the built-in pitfalls of life. Let me pray for us. Lord, we appreciate uh, this wisdom this morning. I know that there's a number of things uh, in this passage that for me are very, very helpful to reflect on and remember Um, Very, very easy for me to get uh, frustrated and indignant when things don't go well in life uh, or when I put a lot of effort into something because I want it to turn out a particular way and and we find that it, I actually find that it goes another way. Um, I don't love that. You know, I I get pretty frustrated by that. But God, we should all expect that life um, has a lot of... um, things that don't go the way we want them to go, that not all of our efforts are going to work out the way we want them to work out, but, but help us to be bold in our action, to keep working, keep working hard, keep choosing the right kind of choices, keep living by wisdom, um, because ultimately that is the best way to live our lives. Help us to be bold in that way. Praise the Lord in your name. Amen.